Hello, and welcome to All Things Plantagenet. My name is Donnie Hazel, and I am your host. To all of my original listeners, welcome back. To those new to the show, welcome. I am a storytelling historian with a great love for the Plantagenet dynasty, as I am a direct descendant to Geoffrey of Anjou via my paternal line on my grandmother Carter's side. I descend through Diana Skipwith, daughter of Sir Henry Skipwith and Amy Kemp. Diana married Captain Thomas Carter. They immigrated to the Americas in 1650, settling in Barford in Lancaster County, Virginia. So with that said, please like and download the show as it helps other listeners learn about the show. If you wish to support this podcast, there is a link for you to do so, and it would be much appreciated as it would help with costs of maintaining the website www.allthingsplantagenet.com where you can find the podcast as well as extra items for each episode you can read or download. You can also find great books and videos for sale as well. Feel free to also visit our Facebook page. A link is provided as well on the website. Okay, on to the episode. Remember to subscribe and click the bell icon to receive notifications from greatest audiobooks. Recording by Pamela Nagami Life of Edward the Black Prince by Louise Creighton Chapter 1 Early Years of the Black Prince On the 15th of June, in the year 1330, there were great rejoicings in the royal palace of Woodstock. One Thomas Pryor came hastening to the young King Edward III to tell him that his queen had just given birth to a son. The king in his joy granted the bearer of this good news an annual pension of forty marks. We can well imagine how he hurried to see his child. When he found him in the arms of his nurse, Joan of Oxford, overjoyed at the sight, he gave the good woman a pension of ten pounds a year, and granted the same sum to Matilda Plumtree, the rocker of the prince's cradle. Perhaps with Edward's thoughts of joy at the birth of his son were mingled some feelings of shame. It was three years since he had been crowned, and yet he was king only in name. He was nothing but a tool in the hands of his unscrupulous mother Isabella and her ambitious favorite Mortimer. He was very young, not quite eighteen, and had not yet had sufficient knowledge or experience to know how to break the bonds within which he was held. But with the new dignity of father came to him a sense of his humiliating position. He would wish that his own son, on reviewing his youth, should have different thoughts of his father than he had. He can hardly have borne to look back upon his own youth, with its shameful memories. He had seen his father, Edward II, by his dissipated life and his slavish devotion to his favorites, alienate the affection of his subjects and provoke the barons to rise against him. Then, when peace had for a while been restored, he had gone with his mother to France. He had seen her refuse to return to England at the king's demand, he had watched the growth of the disgraceful intimacy between her and Roger Mortimer, one of the rebel earls. At last, a powerless instrument in their hands, he had been taken by her and Mortimer to invade England, and Edward II's throne was attacked and overthrown by his own wife and son. The rebellion was entirely successful. None were found to espouse the cause of the despised king. He was obliged formally to give up the crown to his son, and on the 20th of January, 1327, Edward III, then only in his fourteenth year, was proclaimed king. All we know of the part taken by Edward III himself in these proceedings is that he refused to receive the crown without the sanction of his father. But he had no real power. All was in the hands of the queen and Mortimer. Before the end of the year, feeling insecure while Edward II was still alive, they caused him to be secretly murdered in the castle where he was imprisoned. Soon after, they married the young king to Philippa, daughter of the Count of Hainault, 
a union destined in every way to contribute to his happiness and to the good of the kingdom. The power of Queen Isabella and Mortimer continued unchecked till the birth of Prince Edward. It was a troubled world in which the little prince first saw the light. For three years the English people had been subjected to a rule they detested, and their discontent had been gradually growing. One attempt at rebellion had been made by the king's uncle, Edmund, Earl of Kent, but it had only ended in the execution of the simple, high-minded earl. This had increased tenfold the hatred with which Mortimer was regarded. Edward III felt that as a father he was no longer a mere boy, and could not continue to submit to his own degradation. It was not difficult to find people ready and eager to enter into his plans. A conspiracy was formed of which the Queen and Mortimer seemed to have had dim suspicions. They tried to avert the danger by keeping Edward with them in Nottingham Castle, but he succeeded in gaining over the governor of the castle, and a body of armed men was introduced at midnight through a subterranean passage. They broke into the room where Mortimer was, and after a short struggle made him prisoner. The queen, who was in the next room, burst in with agonized entreaties, Fair son, fair son, oh, spare the gentle Mortimer. Soon afterwards Mortimer was brought to trial before a parliament summoned by Edward, and was sentenced to be hanged. Queen Isabella was kept in honourable confinement till her death twenty-seven years after. Edward III now took the entire management of affairs into his own hands, and soon found that he had plenty to do. Whilst the little prince was still in his cradle, his father was already perplexed by the events which were to lead to those wars in which both played such a brilliant part. Edward III's grandfather, Edward I, had cherished the dream of uniting under his own rule England, Scotland, and Wales. At times he had been very near the fulfilment of this dream, but Scottish love of independence had been too strong for him. The Scots found powerful leaders, they struggled fearlessly against apparently hopeless odds, and at last secured the throne to Robert Bruce. The English, however, would not give up the hope of conquering Scotland. One of the most unpopular acts of Queen Isabella and Mortimer had been the conclusion of a peace with Scotland, called the Treaty of Northampton, in which they had recognized Robert Bruce as king. Edward III, therefore, was acting quite in accordance with the wishes of his people when he interfered in Scottish affairs. The moment seemed hopeful. Robert Bruce was dead, his son David was a mere child, and a new claimant to the throne had arisen in Edward Balliol, whose father in former days had struggled for the crown against the Bruces. Balliol was successful, and David Bruce had to fly to France. Then Edward demanded that Balliol should recognize him as suzerain, that is, should acknowledge the overlordship of the English king and do him homage as one of his vassals. Balliol consented, and this, in the end, lost him his crown. The Scottish nobles who had fought so bravely for their independence would own no allegiance to a monarch who could tamely submit to the king of England, they revolted and chased Balliol from the throne. It was then that Edward was called upon to interfere actively. He summoned an army and marched against the revolted Scots. They were completely crushed at the Battle of Halidon Hill near Berwick. Berwick itself fell into Edward's hands and remained part of the English dominions ever afterwards. Balliol was restored to the throne and maintained there by Edward III. The Scottish barons, however, still clung to the house of Bruce, and they would not recognize Balliol, the sub-king of the King of England. They turned to France for help, and France was willing enough to listen to them and seize this opportunity of striking a blow at the growing power of the English crown. Already in the reign of Edward I she had aided the Scots against the English, and it soon became clear to Edward III that he could not hope for submission from Scotland 
until he had put an end to the intervention of france so we see that it is in the struggle between scotland and england that we must look for the chief cause of the great french war which was to drain the resources of both countries for a hundred years we shall see as we follow the course of events how brilliantly this war opened and how eager the english were to engage in it england since edward the third had become king in fact as well as in name seemed inspired with a new life the king was young and ambitious anxious to promote his people's good and eager to gain glory for himself commerce was extending on every side and largely increasing the wealth of the country national life beat vigorously as we see amongst other things in the increased use of the english tongue formerly french had been the common language taught in the schools but now it began gradually to fall into disuse and before the end of edward's reign the english language was to win its final triumph by the appearance of chaucer the first great english poet and wycliffe the first great english prose writer the english people were eager for some great undertaking and from the very first the idea of the french war was extremely popular the people wished it more than edward himself and the parliament urged him to assert his claim to the french crown it is not likely that any one ever thought this claim to be serious or considered it to be anything but a useful pretext for the war such as it was edward's claim to the french crown came through his mother isabella granddaughter of philip the third the bold king of france her three brothers had reigned one after another and all died without male issue on the death of the last charles the fourth the crown passed to his cousin philip of valois son of charles of valois the second son of philip the bold edward the third in asserting his claim had to maintain that though according to the salic law females could not inherit the crown they could transmit it to males he could never have seriously urged such a plea if other causes had not led to a war with france and in time made it useful for him to assume the title of king of france there can be no doubt that edward was grievously provoked by the french before he made up his mind to engage in war the restless ambition of philip of valois produced a general feeling of insecurity his pirate ships interfered with the trade of the channel he made constant encroachments upon the english possessions in france and frequently threatened an invasion of england whilst he thwarted in every possible way edward's policy with regard to scotland under these circumstances it was natural for the english king to go to war though if the war had not aimed at conquest it would have been better for england in the end edward the third however was full of youthful ambition he did not care to look into the future but rushed into the war as if it had been a great tournament in which he and his knights might distinguish themselves so active were the fears of french invasion during the first years of edward the third's reign that we find orders for putting the isle of wight and the southern coast into a state of defence and in thirteen thirty five the young prince was sent to nottingham for safety he must have been early accustomed to hear war talked about and probably the chief part of his education was concerned with military exercises we know little of his youth except that he was educated under the direction of dr walter burley of merton college oxford which since its foundation by walter de merton the chancellor of henry the third had produced most of the men distinguished in england for their learning dr burley on account of his fame for learning and piety had been appointed queen's almoner as his reputation increased at court he was finally appointed tutor to the prince in accordance with the custom of the times many other young gentlemen were educated in common with prince edward so that companionship might lend an increased interest to his studies among others simon burley a young kinsman of dr burley's was admitted to share these advantages he became a great favourite with the prince 
and in time was made knight of the garter and was entrusted with the education of the prince's son richard of bordeaux we can form a pretty good idea of the kind of education received by prince edward and his companions chivalry was then at its height and it was necessary for every gentleman to be skilled in all knightly exercises an accomplished knight must be endowed with beauty with strength and agility of body he must be skilled in music be able to dance gracefully and run swiftly to wrestle and sit well on horseback above all he must be skilful in the management of arms and must thoroughly understand hunting and hawking in these accomplishments were young edward and his companions trained and we cannot doubt that he who was the very type of the chivalric spirit in its highest development early learnt to excel in all knightly exercises there exists a rhyming chronicle in french of the life of edward the black prince by the herald of sir john chandos who was so constantly with the prince that we may believe that his herald writes from personal knowledge of the prince's character he says this frank prince of whom i tell you thought not but of loyalty of free courage and gentleness and endowed was he with such prowess that he wished all the days of his life to give up all his study to the holding of justice and integrity and in that was he nurtured from the time of his infancy of his own noble and free will he learned liberality for goodness and nobleness were in his heart perfectly from the first commencement of his life and youth he was it is well known so preux chivalrous so hardy and so valiant so courteous and so wise he loved so well holy church with all his heart in every form the most holy trinity the festival and holiday there is a tradition that prince edward studied at queen's college oxford and this may perhaps have been the case as queen's college was founded by his mother queen philippa but the story rests on no authentic evidence during his early youth various honours and dignities were bestowed upon him he was made duke of cornwall at the parliament held at westminster in thirteen thirty seven this is the first time that the title duke appears in english history in thirteen thirty eight when edward the third was about to leave england to begin his war with france he appointed his son prince edward to be guardian of the kingdom during his absence as the prince was then but eight years old this was naturally only a nominal office it was not until thirteen forty three that he was created by parliament prince of wales End of section one the years from thirteen thirty six to thirteen thirty eight had been spent by edward the third in preparations for war he had been endeavouring to gain allies amongst the princes on the continent his idea being to unite against france the rulers of the small principalities that lay on its north such as brabant gilders Aino, and nemours he also succeeded in gaining the alliance of the emperor louis of bavaria but his most important ally was jacques van artevelde the man who then ruled flanders with the title of rouvert the condition of flanders at that time was very strange since eight seventy seven flanders had been ruled by a long succession of counts who had done homage to the kings of france for their county the peculiar circumstances of the country its mighty rivers whose wide mouths afforded safe harbours for the ships combined with the industry of the people had early made flanders important as a commercial and trading country during the absence of the counts on the crusades the towns had won for themselves many important privileges and were really free communes owning little more than a nominal allegiance to their duke the kings of france eyed this wealthy and thriving province with great jealousy and eagerly watched for an opportunity of asserting their authority over it but till thirteen twenty two the people and their counts had been firmly united in resistance to france only with the accession of count louis de nevers did the aspect of affairs change this count had been brought up in france and was imbued with french interests 
he objected to the power and independence of the flemish towns and sought to oppress them in every way he governed by french ministers and called in french help against his own subjects then when the people were oppressed their industries ruined their commerce at a standstill by the tyranny of their count they found the leader in jacques van artevelde who showed them the way to liberty and prosperity against the firm union formed by the towns the count of flanders was powerless and fled to the court of france under artevelde's care commerce and manufactures flourished peace and prosperity reigned in the land whilst there was no question of actual revolt from the authority of the count artevelde only wished to show that the liberties of the people must be respected flanders was the great commercial centre of the middle ages where merchants from far distant countries met and exchanged their goods artevelde conceived the great idea in which he was far beyond the intelligence of his time of establishing free trade and neutrality as far as commerce was concerned he was an important ally for edward the third for many reasons it was necessary for the interests of both peoples that flanders and england should be friends for in flanders england found a sale for her wool then the great source of her national wealth from england alone could flanders obtain this precious wool which she manufactured into the famous flemish cloth and sent to all parts of the world edward the third recognized the wisdom and greatness of artevelde and conceived a strong alliance with him for the benefit of both parties on all occasions the english king treated the simple burgher of ghent as an equal and a friend it is not impossible that he gained in his intercourse with artevelde that feeling of the importance of commerce and industry which exercised so great an influence upon his legislation and gained for him the title of the father of english commerce it was on the sixteenth of july thirteen thirty eight that edward the third sailed for flanders his first object was to meet his allies the various princes of the netherlands he did not find them very eager for active cooperation in his undertaking he determined to visit the emperor in person so as to prevail upon him to take an active part in the war with this view he travelled up the rhine stopping first at Köln, then a thriving commercial city enjoying active intercourse with england here edward stayed some days in the house of a wealthy burgher the time passed in merriment and festivities the king receiving visits from all the chief citizens he visited most of the churches and made offerings at the various altars to the building fund of the great cathedral he gave sixty-seven pounds a sum equal to a thousand pounds of our money from Kuhn he proceeded up the rhine his whole way being marked by continual festivities at bunn he stopped with one of the canons of the cathedral at andernach with the franciscans and finally on the thirty-first of august he reached koblenz where the german diet was assembled the emperor received him in state in the market-place seated on a throne twelve feet high and by his side though a little lower was a seat for edward around them stood a brilliant assembly four of the electors were there and wore the insignia of their rank one of the nobles as representative of the duke of brabant held a naked sword high over the emperor's head seventeen thousand knights and gentlemen are said to have been present in the presence of this imposing gathering edward the third was created vicar of the empire for the west bank of the rhine in spite of this journey he obtained nothing from the emperor but this empty title on his return to flanders he was so short of money that he had to pawn the crown jewels to the bardi the great florentine merchants at bruges the allies were slow in bringing their forces into the field van artevelde refused to give edward any active help because of the oaths of fealty by which the flemings were bound to philip of valois at last edward succeeded in collecting an army of fifteen thousand men and met the french near cambrai the two armies parted without a battle and edward returned to Hainault. this fruitless campaign had exhausted his resources without gaining any result he grew more anxious than ever for the help of flanders and made new proposals to the towns with magnificent offers 
Ardevelda at last consented to help him if he would assume the title of King of France. Then the fealty which the towns owed to their suzerain could be transferred from Philip of Valois to Edward. This then was the real cause of Edward's assuming the arms and title of the King of France. He did it only that he might win the active help of the Flemings. As their suzerain, he confirmed all the privileges of the towns and granted them three great charters of liberties. These charters bear the impress of Artevelde's mind and are an expression of his commercial views. They proclaim liberty of commerce, the abolition of tallage, that is, of taxes upon merchandise, and a common currency. They guarantee also the security of merchandise as well as that of the persons of the merchants. The wool staple was fixed at Bruges, that is, Bruges was to be the place where alone wool might be imported and sold to the Flemish merchants. Edward returned to England to obtain the confirmation of these treaties by Parliament, as Artevelde would not be content unless the commons of England gave their consent to them. During his absence, Queen Philippa remained at Ghent, and there gave birth to her third son, John, who, from the city of his birth, was ever afterwards called John of Gaunt. Queen Philippa also acted as godmother to Artevelde's son, who was called Philip after her, and afterwards became famous like his father for defending the liberties of his country, though he did not show his father's wisdom and moderation. Edward III obtained from the Parliament at Westminster the confirmation of his treaty with the Flemish towns, and also a new grant of supplies. This grant was for the most part in kind. The king was to have the ninth lamb, the ninth fleece, and the ninth sheaf, that is in reality a tenth part of the chief produce of the kingdom, for the tithe had first to be paid to the church, and so the ninth part of the remainder equaled the tithe. He was also allowed to levy a tax on the exportation of wool for two years. It shows the great popularity of the war, that so large a grant was agreed upon. We also see the increasing power of Parliament, from the fact that Edward III did not venture to impose any tax without its consent. But in spite of all these grants, Edward was still considerably in debt. He owed nine thousand pounds to the merchants of Bruges, and eighteen thousand one hundred pounds to the association of German merchants in London called the Hanseatic Steel Yard, which had existed certainly since the time of Henry III, and had always been specially favoured by the English monarchs. But the merchants were always willing to lend him money in return for the facilities which he gave to commerce. He was still obliged to pawn the crown jewels, his own crown was pawned to the city of Trier, and Queen Philippus to Culm. Orders had to be given for the alteration of the royal seal, the lilies of France had to be incorporated with the leopard of England. Meanwhile the French had gathered a large fleet, composed principally of Genoese ships, and were threatening the Flemish coast. There was danger of their cutting off intercourse between Antwerp and England. It was necessary for Edward to set off without delay. He hastily collected a fleet of some two hundred sail and started from Orowell, a port in Suffolk, on the 22nd of June, 1340. When the English fleet neared Slouch, they saw standing before them, as Foissart tells us, so many masts that they looked like a wood. This was the French fleet waiting to dispute the passage of the English. When Edward heard who they were, he exclaimed, I have for a long time wished to meet with them, and now, please God and St. George, we will fight with them, for in truth they have done me so much mischief that I will be revenged on them if possible. The English fleet was arranged in order of battle. The strongest ships were put in the middle, between every two ships manned with archers was a ship of armed knights. The wings were mostly composed of archers. Great care was taken for the safety of a large number of noble ladies who were going to attend the queen at Ghent, picked men being chosen to guard them. The French force was greatly superior to the English, as they possessed nineteen ships of very large size, most of which had been captured from the English the year before, when the French had attacked the English ports. The French formed themselves into four long lines, 
their ships were firmly fastened together with chains and ropes the french admiral considering his position impregnable determined to remain on the defensive and refused to listen to the advice of the genoese commander barbavara and advanced to the attack the french were soon enveloped in a shower of english arrows grappling irons fastened the english ships to the french and the fight became fierce the great english ship the christopher was recaptured from the french and the english flag again hoisted upon her the french were hemmed in on all sides in their rear they were threatened by the inhabitants of the coast so that escape seemed impossible only at nightfall did the genoese and some few french ships succeed in getting away in the darkness the loss of the french was enormous whilst the english suffered comparatively little and captured a vast amount of booty and a large number of prisoners great were the rejoicings for this victory the news of it passed rapidly from mouth to mouth the french pirates were destroyed and once more the merchant could carry his goods across the seas without danger in all the english churches thanksgivings were offered for the victory by royal command edward the third had himself been slightly wounded in the battle but still his first act on landing was to go with his knights on a pilgrimage to our lady of arenburg to give thanks he then proceeded to ghent where he found his queen with her newborn baby edward the third hoped to be able to follow up this naval victory by striking a decisive blow on land the deputies of the flemish towns and his other allies met him at ghent and the flemings agreed to aid him if he would help them to get back artois which had formerly belonged to flanders but had been treacherously taken from them by philip the fourth king of france in five days the towns had levied one hundred and forty thousand foot soldiers who all agreed to fight without pay in this war thus reinforced edward marched to tournay which he completely invested philip advanced from arras to relieve the town discontent had already broken out in the confederate army the flemings were not professional soldiers but were the burghers and handicraftsmen of the towns who had turned out to defend their own hearths and homes marching under the banners of their different guilds they were soon eager to get back to their shops and their looms philip's sister jeanne of valois a nun at fontenelle hard by appeared between the two armies as peacemaker and a truce was agreed upon jacques van artevelde succeeded in obtaining most advantageous terms for the flemings with the habitual selfishness of a commercial and industrial people having brought matters to a satisfactory conclusion for themselves they thought no more of edward's interests he too had to agree to a truce for nine months and to retire a second time without striking a decisive blow he had expended vast sums of money in these two campaigns and had gained nothing he had only learnt one lesson and that a very important one that it was no use depending upon allies and that henceforth he must trust to himself alone the truce between france and england had been concluded at first for only nine months till twenty fifth september thirteen forty one but it was afterwards prolonged till thirteen forty two edward soon found a new opening for attacking france in the contest that was going on about the succession of the duchy of brittany edward the third determined to give his aid to de montfort whilst the other claimant charles of blois was supported by his uncle philip here also after a while a truce was agreed upon which was to last till michaelmas thirteen forty six a truce had also been made with scotland and david bruce had returned to his kingdom thus there was an interval of comparative peace but each side was only waiting for an auspicious moment to begin the war again and the french did not cease their aggressions upon guienne in spite of the large sums it cost the english people were by no means weary of the war the parliament that sat in thirteen forty four began by giving its opinion in favour of peace if fair terms could be procured but proceeded to grant the king supplies to enable him to continue the war they begged him to finish it in a short time either by battle or treaty the nobles agreed to cross the sea and fight with him and the clergy granted him the tenth of their benefices for three years the king's cousin the earl of derby a brave and accomplished knight 
was sent with an army into Guienne to recover the country which had been won by the French. We must try to understand clearly what were at this time the possessions of the English in France. Under Henry II, the territory which the English king ruled over in France was greater in extent than England itself. Part of this, such as Normandy and men, belonged to the English kings by virtue of their descent from William the Conqueror. Anjou and Touraine had come to Henry II through his father, Geoffrey of Anjou. The great duchy of Aquitaine, consisting of seven provinces, he obtained as the marriage portion of his wife, Eleanor of Guienne. Thus he ruled over the western part of France, from the Channel to the Pyrenees, and held the mouths of the great rivers Seine, Loire, and Garonne. These vast dominions really made the Angevin kings, so called from their descent from Geoffrey of Anjou, foreign rather than English rulers. It was not therefore altogether to the disadvantage of England when Normandy and the other possessions in northern France were taken from the feeble John by the king of France. The Duchy of Aquitaine still remained in the possession of the English. Once it was wrested from them, in 1294, by Philip IV, king of France, but he soon had to restore it. It is easy to imagine how anxious the French kings must have been to gain possession of this great duchy. A succession of able, unscrupulous kings had been trying by every means to extend and consolidate their dominions. The kings of France had not at first been as powerful as many of their great barons, who ruled as hereditary and independent princes in their separate provinces, paying the king only a nominal homage. To reduce these barons to submission was the task laid upon the French kings for many generations. Little by little they got hold of the lands of their vassals and neighbours. Rivalry between France and England began from the first moment that the Dukes of Normandy became kings of England. It was increased when the Duchy of Aquitaine was added to the English dominions. Philip Augustus had won Normandy from John. It remained for his successors to win Aquitaine. The Duchy of Aquitaine included Poitou, Limousin, Guienne, and Gascony. It extended toward the north almost as far as the mouth of the Loire, and toward the south to the foot of the Pyrenees. It embraced the fertile bed of the Garonne, at the mouth of which lay the great city of Bordeaux, whence the wine grown in the duchy was imported into England. Bayonne was another important port lying to the south of Bordeaux. It was here that the Earl of Derby landed when he was sent by Edward III to recover the places which Philip had succeeded in winning in Guienne. His campaign was marked with brilliant success, and he soon won back all that had been lost. Edward III, meanwhile, determined to make another journey to Flanders to strengthen his alliance with the Flemings. This time he took with him his son, Prince Edward, who had now completed his education and was to begin at what seems to us the early age of fifteen to take part in the active business of life. Van Artevelde met his royal guests at Escluze, and the deputies of the towns also came to discuss the state of affairs. Foissart tells us that there was a proposal made by Artevelde to set aside Louis, Count of Flanders, and make the Prince of Wales count in his stead, but this statement is not supported by other evidence and does not seem to be in accordance with the views of Artevelde, who never showed any desire to put aside the rightful count. Having assured himself of the friendship of Flanders, Edward returned to England with his son. Only a few days after his departure, his faithful friend van Artevelde was murdered at Ghent in a disturbance caused by a furious faction of the populace. This murder was the act of a small party, not of the country. The government and administration of affairs remained as before throughout Flanders. The towns sent deputies to England to express to Edward III their freedom from complicity in this murder and their desire to maintain the English alliance. The close commercial relations between the two countries which had been established by the wisdom of van Artevelde went on as before and the English wool was still carried to the staple at Bruges to be sold. End of section 2 In the years between the campaign in Flanders, which was ended by a truce on September 25, 1340, 
and the campaign of Crecy in 1346, Edward had been principally occupied in preparations for renewing the war. Peace negotiations had been carried on before Pope Clement VI by commissioners appointed by the two kings, but as neither party wished for peace, it could not be expected that these would lead to any result. The Parliament that sat at Westminster in 1343 had, as we have seen, relieved Edward III from his pressing want of money by granting him new supplies, and he had been able to redeem his great crown from pawn. But he had borrowed so largely from the great Florentine merchants, the Bardi, that his failure to pay his debt of 900,000 golden florins at the right time brought about their bankruptcy, and as they were the largest bankers in Florence, the whole city suffered greatly through their failure. Once supplied with money, Edward had to turn his attention to raising levies for the war. The royal armies had long ceased to consist merely of feudal militia, as this could not be used for any long campaign. According to feudal customs, the levies were only obliged to serve for forty days. Hence, though they could be used for a sudden attack upon a neighboring prince, they were of little use to a king who wished to carry an army across the seas to invade a foreign country. The custom of commutation, therefore, had grown up, that is, of receiving money payments instead of personal service. With this money the king could then hire soldiers to fight for him as long as he chose to keep them. These hired soldiers were raised in the following way. The government appointed a contractor for every district, who agreed to furnish from that district a given number of men for a fixed pay. Sometimes the men enlisted voluntarily, but so many complaints were made by the commons during Edward's reign of forced levies that it seems as if compulsion was often used to obtain enlistments. To raise soldiers for the campaign on which he was about to engage, Edward III ordered the sheriffs throughout the country to summon every man-at-arms in the kingdom to attend personally, or else send a substitute. All landowners were to furnish men-at-arms, hobblers, and archers in proportion to their incomes. All these men were paid for their service, and the rate of pay was much higher then than it is now. From this it appears that probably even the private soldier was taken from the smaller gentry or the rich yeomanry. This helps to account for the efficiency of Edward's army. It was through the valor of the common soldiers, rather than through the prowess of his knights, that Edward won his victories. On this occasion pardon was promised to criminals on condition of their serving in the war. Edward, Prince of Wales, was to collect 4,000 men from Wales, half lancers and half bowmen. All these levies were to meet at Portsmouth on October 9th, ready to embark. Let us try and get some idea of the nature of the troops collected at Portsmouth to form the army which was to invade France. First in rank and importance were the men-at-arms. These were the knights with their esquires and followers. The esquires were the attendants upon the knights, and were generally young men of rank, serving their time till they should be raised to knighthood. The knights, with their esquires and followers, were all equipped alike in plate armor, and formed the heavy cavalry. Their chargers also were protected by plates of steel, and their armor was made so impervious that no weapon then known could pierce it. But its weight was so great that only to carry it exhausted the strength of the knights and crippled their power. Their arms were the lance, the sword, the battle-axe, or the mace, and they bore a shield for defense. Each knight who brought his esquires and followers into the field might bear his pennon, which was a long, narrow ensign. Some knights, who were rich enough to have other knights in their service, carried square banners. We can imagine the brilliant effect of a company of these knights in their burnished steel armor, often beautifully chased and inlaid with other metals, with their gay banners streaming in the wind. Many of them might be seen bearing a falcon on their wrist, so that amidst the fatigues of war they might occasionally refresh themselves with the chase. To them was reserved the place of honor in the battle. Theirs are the deeds of prowess which the chroniclers delight to record. War was to them only a vast tournament, in which they might display their valor and strive to surpass their adversaries. Next came the hobblers, the light cavalry, who were recruited from a rank inferior to that of the knights. 
their horses also were inferior and they were not so heavily armed but the real strength of the army lay in the third body of men the archers who of course fought on foot it was to their skill and courage that edward was to owe his victories shooting with the longbow was a thoroughly english recreation on holidays it had long been the custom for the yeomen to meet together to practise their skill by shooting at a mark the kings did their utmost to encourage this pastime in the thirteenth century every person possessing a revenue of above one hundred pence in land was obliged to have a bow and arrows in his possession edward the third feared at one time that the skill of the english archers was declining he sent a letter to the sheriffs of london in which he said that the skill in shooting arrows was almost totally laid aside for the pursuit of various useless and unlawful games such as coits cock-fighting football and etc he commanded the sheriffs therefore to see that the leisure time on holidays was spent in recreations with bow and arrows so highly did edward value the archer's skill of course as there was no standing army there could be no body of regularly trained archers the archers like the other soldiers were recruited from the people and if the mass of the people were not practised in archery there could be no hope of obtaining skilful archers the bows used by them were six feet long their arrows three feet in shooting they drew their arrows to the ear and could send them with good aim a distance of two hundred and forty yards they carried their bows in canvas cases so that they might not be wetted by the rain or cracked by the sun edward the third had a bodyguard of archers one hundred and twenty in number chosen from the stoutest and most skilful men in the country the fourth body of men consisted of the remaining foot soldiers who were mostly armed with lances besides these a large number of labourers of various kinds had to be engaged to follow the army these men were pressed by the sheriffs and in most cases were obliged to go against their will for it could hardly be to their profit to leave their homes and their business to meet all the dangers of a distant expedition there were the blacksmiths to repair the armour and shoe the horses the masons to build the bridges the rope-makers carpenters wood-cutters miners and many others all these men began to gather together at portsmouth in the beginning of october the great lords came ready to serve without pay in this war they were a noble assembly of seven earls thirty-five barons and many other gentlemen all the flower of the english nobility thither came the king with all his personal followers he brought with him thirty falconers on horseback so that in the intervals of war he might indulge in his favourite pursuit of hawking for waterfowls along the courses of the streams besides his falcons he took with him sixty couples of staghounds and as many harehounds that he might hunt when wearied of hawking many of the great lords also had their hounds and their falconers with them almost every day during the campaign edward the third and his lords are said to have found time for hunting or hawking we can imagine with what feelings edward the young prince of wales prepared to start on this his first enterprise he had been brought up amidst the ideas of chivalry and regarded war and adventure as the only true vocation of a gentleman now at last he was to be allowed to go out into the world himself and fight the enemy and win his spurs his father was as enthusiastic as himself he was then in the flower of his manhood just thirty-four years old while the prince was sixteen they were more like two brothers than father and son the destination of the expedition was kept secret the king's first intention is supposed to have been to sail to guienne to aid the earl of derby in opposing the french army which had been sent against him but on board edward's ship there was a norman gentleman sir godfrey de harcourt who represented to him that normandy was the richest and most fertile province in france that it was quite undefended and that the english would be able to land there without resistance gain great booty and subdue many towns before the french army could return from gascony to oppose them edward yielded to his persuasions and this change of destination shows us that he undertook this expedition without any decided plan his success was not so much owing to a skilfully arranged campaign as to the personal valour of his troops and to his own genius as a commander 
the english army landed at la hogue on the tenth of july thirteen forty six it is supposed to have numbered thirty two thousand men edward's first act on landing was to confer a knighthood on his son he found as sir godfrey de harcourt had said that his coming was quite unexpected there was no french army to resist him and he marched into normandy without opposition he divided his troops into three battalions so arranged they went through the country pillaging and even burning many of the towns and villages on their way the fleet meanwhile burnt such ships as it found in the harbours the rules of chivalry were not concerned with the treatment which a peasant or burgher might receive from the hands of a knight a knight was bound to treat his equal with courtesy but his refinement was only one-sided to the low-born he acknowledged no duties the chivalrous army of edward the third spread devastation on every side of the rich and fertile province of normandy at caen they found a garrison which attempted in vain to defend the town it was one of the richest towns in europe full as foissart tells us of draperies and all sorts of merchandise of rich citizens noble dames and damsels and fine churches all its wealth fell into the hands of the english they stayed in the town for three days and the plunder they collected was sent down the river in barges to the fleet the ships were laden with cloths jewels gold and silver plate and merchandise of all kinds edward sent orders for all this wealth to be convoyed to england together with a number of prisoners the resistance of caen had been in vain and the other cities opened their gates at once to the english at louviers a rich mercantile city they again won great wealth meanwhile philip had heard of edward's landing in normandy and was hastening to meet him edward's intention was to cross the seine at rouen and advance northwards to meet his flemish allies who had crossed the frontier but at rouen he found the bridge broken down by the french who having as yet collected no regular army wherewith to confront him wished at least to prevent him from crossing the river edward continued his march up the left bank of the seine hoping to find some place where he could cross but all the bridges were broken down his situation was becoming critical retreat was impossible as he had devastated all the country through which he had passed and he had no supplies to fall back upon his one desire was to draw philip into battle philip on the other hand wished to gain time for time reduced the power of edward but brought new levies daily to philip so edward continued his course of devastation to poissy almost under the walls of paris the french peasants driven from their burning homes and seeing all their goods carried off by the english soldiers cried out in despair where is philip our king it was august when edward reached poissy philip was encamped with a large army at st denis but edward failed to draw him out to battle and did not venture to attack him the english found the beams of the bridge at poissy still floating in the river and edward determined to wait there whilst his workmen repaired the bridge he stayed five days in the nunnery at poissy where he celebrated the feast of the assumption of the virgin mary and sat at table in his scarlet robes trimmed with fur and ermine when the bridge was rebuilt the english army crossed the river on the sixteenth august dispersing the french on the opposite side with showers of arrows and marched toward the somme they passed the city of beauvais but edward did not venture to stop and besiege it his army was beginning to diminish the men suffered from the heat and the rapid marches they subsisted only on plunder as they had no supplies with them their boots were beginning to wear out and there was no means of replacing them philip was in their rear with a force greatly superior in numbers edward contented himself with burning the suburbs of beauvais and passed on toward the somme at Erin they stopped three days whilst the earl of warwick and sir godfrey de harcourt looked for a place where they might pass the river but they found all the bridges strongly defended by french troops and returned in despair to edward philip was now close at hand at amiens and the english hemmed in between the great french army and the river were thus without way of escape it was necessary at least to leave Arennes edward was thoughtful and silent 
he ordered mass to be said before sunrise and the trumpets sounded for marching at ten the english left arenne and at noon the french entered the town they found it full of provisions left by the english the meat was still on the spits there was bread in the ovens wine in barrels and even tables laid ready for dinner here the french took up their quarters the english meanwhile had taken the little town of oisemont and established themselves there for the night edward caused some prisoners who had been captured on the march to be brought before him and promised that if any one of them would show him a ford in the river by which the english army might pass over he and twenty of his companions should have their liberty a peasant gobain agas by name stood forth and said he knew of a ford where when the tide was low the army might cross in safety for then the water was only knee-deep and the bottom was made of gravel and white stones so that the carriages might pass over without danger this ford was called blanc and was defended by sir godemar du fay with four thousand men on the morning of the twenty fourth august the english waited eagerly for the tide to go out on the opposite side the forces of sir godemar du fay were drawn up to defend the ford edward gave the word of command in the name of god and st george and the english knights plunged into the stream the french met them in the water and desperate deeds of valour were done by the knights on either side as they struggled in the river meanwhile the archers on the banks did much havoc with their persistent showers of arrows at last the french broke and fled the english army crossed in safety but the last of their troops had hardly reached the opposite bank when the light cavalry who formed the advance guard of the french army arrived and succeeded in capturing some loiterers when philip himself reached the river the tide had risen and the ford was impassable he had to retire to abbeville and cross by the bridge there the english army marched on into ponthieu and took up their position on the hills near the little village of crecy here edward determined to halt and await in an advantageous position the coming of the french he determined to hazard all on the result of one engagement though his forces were greatly inferior to the french even then philip was awaiting at abbeville the arrival of new troops but this delay was really advantageous to edward as it gave him time to recruit his weary troops and to make preparations for battle he had chosen his position with consummate skill the army was encamped on the rising ground on the right bank of the little river mai in front of the town of crecy the left wing was protected by the river in front of it palisades had been erected and the baggage had been piled together to cover the troops the right wing was protected by a little wood the front of the army commanded a ravine on a gentle slope called la vallee des clercs this arrangement prevented the french from using their cavalry with success except against the right wing of the english army on the evening of friday the twenty fifth august the soldiers were busy furbishing and mending their armour so as to be quite ready for the battle the king gave a great supper to all the earls and barons of the army they feasted with great cheer not discouraged by the thought that on the morrow they would have to fight against terrible odds when his guests had left him the king retired to his oratory and kneeling down prayed to god that if he should combat his enemies on the morrow he might come off with honour it was midnight before he lay down to sleep early the next morning the king and his son heard mass and communicated the greater part of the army confessed and did the same then the king ordered the men to arm and assemble he divided his army into three battalions the first battalion was under the command of the prince of wales who was aided by the earls of warwick and northampton stationed in its front was a large body of archers arranged in the form of a harrow behind it a little to its flank stood the second battalion commanded by the earl of arundel the king commanded the third battalion which formed the reserve and was stationed on the summit of the hill behind when all was arranged the king mounted a white palfrey and carrying a white wand in his hand surrounded by his marshals rode through the ranks encouraging the men and bidding them guard his honour and defend his right he spoke to them so sweetly and with such cheerful countenance says Foissart, that all who had been dispirited were directly comforted by seeing and hearing him 
he bade them eat and drink that they might be strong and vigorous in fighting there was no hurry or anxiety when they had eaten they packed up their pots and barrels in the carts and put everything in order then each man going to his post seated himself on the ground with his helmet and bow before him that he might be fresh when the enemy arrived all the knights had dismounted intending to fight on foot the french had left abbeville at sunrise the army made unwieldy by its size was weary and disorganized by the long march the lords who had been sent forward to reconnoitre came back and advised the french king to let his men rest that night and not engage battle till the morrow but the french knights in proud confidence of their own superiority were impatient to fight they pressed forward in a disorderly mass and when king philip caught sight of the english his blood began to boil and he ordered the genoese archers to form just then a fearful thunderstorm swept over the country the rain fell in torrents and large flights of crows startled by the storm hovered over the french army and seemed birds of ill omen in the eyes of the soldiers after the storm the sun shone out brightly and shining in the eyes of the french dazzled them by its brilliancy but the english had it at their backs the rain also had wetted the strings of the genoese crossbowmen and by slackening them made it difficult to shoot but the english kept their long bows and canvas cases so they were not harmed by the rain the english soldiers were seated on the ground awaiting the approach